The scripture this morning is John chapter 14, verses 16 through 24, and then chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to him and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The word of the Lord. Do you ever ache? to be filled with the love of something bigger than yourself. Maybe you call it God. Maybe you call it the divine. Maybe you don't know what to call it. But there's a longing, there's a hunger to connect with something beyond ourselves. For instance, you're probably, many of you, familiar with what's called the rise of the nuns. When surveys ask people about their religious affiliation, nuns are the people who check the box that says none. No religious affiliation. Um, in 2021, for instance, the Pew Research Center estimated that the number of U.S. adults who identify as nuns has increased to about 29%. But they also estimate that the number of adults in the U.S. who identify as spiritually but not religious has also increased to 27%. So fewer and fewer people call themselves religious, but more and more people still identify as spiritual in some way. Now we have to be careful how we interpret data, but I would suggest that the ache we feel to, to, to be filled with the love of something beyond ourselves, something bigger than ourselves, is a stubbornly resilient human experience. In other words, we are not evolving out of this. For instance, John Krakauer is a famous writer. In a book he wrote about Mormonism, he said this, he said, I don't know if God exists. I have nevertheless arrived at a few modest truths. Most of us fear death. Most of us yearn to comprehend how we got here and why. Which is to say, most of us ache to know the love of our Creator. And we will no doubt feel that ache, most of us, for as long as we happen to be alive. John Krakauer does not know if God exists. He does have a spiritual ache. Or, Tara Isabella Burton is an expert on 
uh, spirituality in modern America. She wrote a whole book about it just a couple of years ago. Uh, in the beginning of her book, she says that she is not just a neutral observer here. Here's what she writes. She says, I was a lonely academic theologian in my mid-twenties, uncertain about what I believed about the world, about what was beyond it. I studied God, but I had no idea what I actually believed. I remember both the wrenching terror that this world was, in fact, all there is, and the hope that maybe there was something more. This book is about the hunger and the hope I felt it is about our quest for knowing, belonging, and for meaning, the pilgrimage none of us can get out of. We are all on a pilgrimage. We all have this ache for the love of something bigger than ourselves. The longing for spiritual connection is an ongoing human experience. What do we do with that longing? We're beginning a series today on the Holy Spirit. Um, for thousands of years, the Holy Spirit has been at the very heart of Christian spirituality. Many people today would question whether Christianity still has anything to say to our modern world, uh, including on spiritual experience. But I hope that as we go through this topic together, we're going to see that uh, the gospel still has a lot to say about this, far more than we realize. So let's get an introduction to the Holy Spirit this morning by looking at this passage and learning three things. Jesus is going to show us who is the Holy Spirit, what does the Spirit do, and lastly, how do we experience it? Who is the Holy Spirit, what does the Spirit do, and how do we experience it? Okay? First, who is the Holy Spirit? This passage takes place the night before Jesus was crucified. He's telling his disciples, I'm going away, and you can't come. And they're devastated. But Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. Now remember that experience we were just talking about, our experience of that spiritual ache, that longing to be connected to something bigger than ourselves? One way of describing that would be to call it spiritual orphanhood. We feel adrift and lost in this world, and we're looking for something or someone to help us through. Did you ever see the animated movie Up? It's about that old man named Carl Fredrickson and his childhood sweetheart Ellie. They spend their whole life together until Ellie dies and Carl is left to grow old all by himself. But then, on the night before they're getting ready to take him away to the old folks' home, Carl is looking at the mailbox that he and Ellie painted together. And he's remembering the love and the joy they shared together. He's feeling lost, alone, and afraid. And without even thinking about it, he says, Oh, Ellie, what do I do now? And throughout the rest of that movie, whenever he's feeling lost, whenever he's facing a dilemma, whether it's to um, help an awkward little boy scout named Russell, or to rescue an exotic bird named Kevin, every time he feels lost and adrift, he says, Oh, Ellie, what do I do now? Spiritual orphanhood. We feel adrift in this world. We feel lost in this world. But Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. So the question is, okay, Jesus, how? Well, Jesus goes on to say this. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. Now, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit here, and this shows us the first thing we learn about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. You know, one of the most common things I encounter when I'm listening to 
people describe their spiritual lives to me is very often people will use very impersonal language to describe it and talk about the divine or consciousness or energy. Kind of like the Force in Star Wars. Very powerful, but very impersonal. Now maybe that is the truth about spiritual reality. I can't prove it either way. What we can do is recognize that when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he's talking about a person, not a force, but a person. In fact, um, John, the uh, disciple who wrote this gospel, really brings this out in a remarkable way. The New Testament was written in the Greek language. Now, in Greek, nouns can be either masculine, feminine, or neuter. And the, the Greek word for spirit, that word is neuter. Now, I understand that in our culture, gender and pronouns are an incredibly contentious topic. So please don't let that distract you from what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not talking about the gender of the Holy Spirit. He's saying the Holy Spirit is a person. So for instance, at the very beginning, when Jesus first introduces the Holy Spirit in verse 17, spirit, the neuter noun, and the pronoun he uses, they both agree. So for instance, he says, the spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him. And that's what our translation says, but literally, it's the word it. Spirit and it are both neutered. The noun and pronoun agree. Okay, now that's just good grammar. But every single time after this, whenever Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, instead of saying it, he says he. That that's incorrect grammar. But it's not making a mistake. It's making a point. The Holy Spirit is a person. And that leads to the second big thing we learn about who the Holy Spirit is. He's not just a person. He's God. Jesus goes on to say this. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. And we will come to them and make our home with them. Now, as modern people, this doesn't mean very much to us. But this would have been ringing all kinds of bells for Jesus' Jewish disciples. And when Jesus says this, he is tapping into what is probably the main promise of the whole Bible. Remember our problem. We feel lost and spiritually adrift in this world. We feel cut off from spiritual reality. The main promise of the Bible is God's answer to that problem. And you see it everywhere throughout Scripture, dozens of times. For instance, in Ezekiel 37, God is talking to the people of Israel. They are in exile. They are cut off from their true home. They are cut off from God. But God makes a promise to them. He says, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you recognize the similar language between this and what Jesus just said? This promise happens throughout the Bible. It's everywhere. In fact, the climax of it comes at the end of the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, you see the fulfillment of this promise. It says, behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. When Jesus says that he and the Father are going to come and make their home with us, he's talking about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit is a, is a, is a person of God, and that's the way that, that Jesus and the Father make their personal presence with us forever. In fact, it's statements like this that led the very first Christians 
to the doctrine of the Trinity. This is completely different from any other religion. The, the Trinity says that God is not one God in one person. He's also not one God in three persons. I mean, one, three gods in three persons. God is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I know it's confusing. I just got confused trying to describe it to you. <laughs> now, this is not a sermon on the Trinity. And so we can't explore this um, anymore this morning. In, in any case, I'm not enough of a theologian to say much more than that anyway. But here's the point. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is the way that, that God the Son and God the Father make their, their presence, their home, their indwelling inside of us. Now that right there is mind-blowing. But that actually leads to our next point. We've just seen who the Holy Spirit is. But secondly, what does the Spirit do? We're actually going to spend the rest of this series talking about the different ways the Holy Spirit um, works in our lives and in our world. But nevertheless, Jesus shows us here that all of the different things the Holy Spirit do come under one primary overarching purpose. In chapter 16, Jesus says, He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will glorify me. That word glory in the Bible, that's a word that means weight or reality. The more something weighs, the more glory it has, the more significance it has, the more it matters. Jesus is saying that the main work of the Holy Spirit is to make the personal presence of Jesus more real to you, more, more glorious to you. J.I. Packer was one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Um, in a great book he wrote about the Holy Spirit, he calls this the floodlight ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you were to walk up to a beautiful church at night, it would be very difficult to see because it's in the dark. But if you were to put some floodlights on the ground and point them up at the building, all of a sudden what's hidden in darkness would be glorious to your eyes. The purpose of the floodlights is not to draw your attention to themselves, but to focus all of your attention, all of your love, admiration, and wonder on the building. J.I. Packer says, Jesus is the building. The Holy Spirit is the floodlights. It's as if the Holy Spirit was standing behind you, throwing all of his light over your shoulder so that you can see Jesus who's standing in front of you. Or we could say it like this, the main thing the Holy Spirit does is dwell inside of you to make the glory of Jesus more real to you. The main thing the Holy Spirit does is to dwell inside of you to make the glory, the reality, the weight, the significance of Jesus more real to you. That's why Jesus calls the Holy Spirit an advocate. Notice how he says this. Uh, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Now that word advocate is the Greek word paraclete, which actually is not an uncommon word in our world. But paraclete is a word that gets translated in many different ways. Advocate, helper, counselor, comforter, and many others. The reason it has so many translations is because no single English word is capable of capturing the fullness of what this word means. That if we break it down, para in Greek is a word that means with or alongside. Like in paramedic, that's somebody who brings medical care with you or alongside you. The, the word kaleo is a word that means to call, speak, or declare. 
You put it all together, and a paraclete is someone who comes alongside of you and speaks or advocates the whole truth to you. So for instance, did you notice that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth? He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, the Spirit of Truth. When Jesus talks about the truth, he's talking about himself. In fact, this whole chapter is, uh, begins with that incredibly famous statement that Jesus makes when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. When Jesus talks about the truth, he's not just talking about random facts like the law of gravity or the chemical composition of water. Jesus is talking about himself. He is the truth. And the main work of the Holy Spirit is to come into your life and to advocate that truth, to make that truth, the truth of Jesus, more real to you. Here's why all of this is so important for us. Remember our spiritual ache. The longing for something bigger than ourselves is an ongoing human experience. But in our culture, we also have this narrative that says everyone has to determine spiritual truth for themselves. The most important thing about a spiritual path is you need to find something that works for you, something that makes you happy, something that helps you feel good about yourself, that helps you express your truest, most authentic self to the world around you. Have you ever heard anything like that? Is that familiar at all? In many ways, that is like the default narrative in our culture. Um, in fact, it's like a floodlight. Oftentimes, we're not even looking at the narrative. The narrative is like something that's standing behind us, throwing its light over our shoulder and shaping the way we look at our lives and our world and everything else. Now, here's what's good about this. This narrative actually is encouraging us to take ownership and responsibility for what we believe in the course of our lives. It's saying don't believe something just because an institution or some authority figure told you. You have to take ownership for your own beliefs in the course of your life. That's a good thing. That's a crucial thing. In fact, Jesus himself was constantly urging and appealing to people to take ownership for the course of their own lives. Read Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a good thing, but in our culture, the individual has become everything. So for instance, in her book, Tara Isabella Burton points out that more and more people are rejecting institutional religion. Um, big reason is because they're rejecting the hypocrisy of the church, but it's also because of a larger rejection of things like creeds, dogmas, expectations, and rules that are seen as oppressive and limiting human freedom. Instead, she says more and more people are turning to what she calls intuitional religion. The idea is that... Um, you, you, we need to pay more attention to intuition and experience and emotion so that we can uh, determine our own spiritual truths and our own spiritual fulfillment. But do you see some of, the, some of the inconsistencies with this? First, our culture's idea that we should reject any voice of authority telling us what to believe, that idea is itself a voice of authority telling us what to believe. We haven't rejected external authoritative voices. We've simply started listening to another authoritative voice. Second, uh, this idea that no one can know the ultimate truth about spiritual reality is itself a truth claim about the ultimate nature of spiritual reality. That means that we haven't gotten rid of spiritual truth claims 
In our culture, we've simply substituted an alternative spiritual truth claim. And the spiritual truth claim that our culture is constantly and authoritatively proclaiming to us is basically that you need to be your own advocate. That there is no truth out there, no spiritual truth out there. The only way you're going to find truth is to look inside of yourself and only inside of yourself. Jesus challenges that narrative and says, no, you will never find truth and spiritual connection only by looking inside of yourself. You need another advocate in your life. The Holy Spirit who comes and advocates the truth about who I am and makes that real to you. And that leads to our last point. Jesus has shown us who is the Holy Spirit. We've just seen what does the Spirit do. But lastly, how do we experience this? In other words, how do we experience the person and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? We're going to spend the rest of the series talking about this, but let me set the stage by offering just a couple of thoughts for us. And the first is this. Look behind you. Here's what I mean. We just saw that the Holy Spirit in many ways is like a floodlight. The Spirit stands behind us, throwing His light over our shoulder, helping us to see Jesus. But we've also seen that our world is filled with narratives and ideas that are also like a floodlight. Oftentimes, we're not even paying attention to them. We're not even aware that they're there. But these narratives are standing behind us in the background, throwing their light over our shoulders and shaping the way we see our lives in the world. To look behind you means essentially to turn around and to examine those narratives, to name them, to question and interrogate them. And when it comes to our experience of spiritual orphanhood, it means especially to question our cultural narrative about where you find glory. Because remember, glory means weight and significance. And every single one of us, we need to know that our presence in this life, in this world, that it matters. That your life has meaning. We're all looking for that. All of us. We, we can't live without that. Um, and, and we've seen that the, that the narratives are there, standing behind us, telling us where to find that. Well, our spiritual egg says that we have to find that by being connected to something bigger than us, but our cultural narrative says that the only place you can find that is within yourself. So for instance, Andrew Del Banco is a professor of American studies at Columbia University. He wrote a book about where Americans have found hope throughout history. He shows in that book that since the 1960s, Americans rejected any bigger stories and now have embraced the story of um, individual self-expression. In other words, there is no bigger story out there, and if you want to find meaning and glory and purpose for your life, then you have to create it for yourself. In the book, he says this. He says, hope has narrowed to the vanishing point of self alone. The modern self becomes all and therefore nothing at the same time. In other words, he's saying that the that, that self, the individual self, there's no way that that can sustain the weight of glory that we put on it in our modern world. Now, he wrote this 24 years ago. Fast forward to today. Think about the meaninglessness and the hopelessness that fill our world today. Think about the skyrocketing rates of anxiety, depression, loneliness, suicide, addiction, especially among young people. Our culture says that, that we have to find all hope for glory in ourselves, but if all hope for glory is in ourselves, we lose all hope for glory. 
Because the only way we can really get that is being by, by being connected to something bigger than ourselves, but our culture said you have to find it within yourself. The first way we experience the person, the work, the Holy Spirit, is you have to look behind you. You have to examine, name, question, and interrogate the other narratives, the other floodlights that are in your life. But second, we have to look in front of you. And here's what this means. Notice in this passage, uh, we go back to it. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you, notice how he says it, another advocate. That means there's more than one advocate here. So who is this first advocate? And what does he have to do with the Holy Spirit in us? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us in this passage, but John the guy who wrote this gospel, wrote another letter to the church in which he says this. He says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The Holy Spirit is another advocate because Jesus Christ is the first advocate. Now, what does that mean? It would be easy to think, well, that means that you know, when we ask God for forgiveness, that's like, here comes Jesus advocating this for us to the Father and saying, hey, Eric, it's true. I mean, here, hey, God, it's true. Eric has done it again. He messed up again. But I want to ask you to have mercy on Eric and, and just cut him some slack and give him another chance. Now, that would be true if this verse said that God is faithful and merciful. But that's not what it says. It says that God is faithful and what? Just. God is faithful and just to forgive us. Now, how can that be? I mean, when we think about our world, look, it, it's instinctive to us that wrongdoing demands justice. If somebody does something wrong to you, unjust to you, everything inside of us cries out for justice. We know that instinctively. And yet, when we're the ones who stand accused, on the one hand, we desire mercy, and yet we know that we deserve justice. How in the world can God bring together love and forgiveness with justice? There's a, a show on Netflix right now called Beef. Um, it's an adult show with adult themes, exercise discernment. And I don't want to um, give any spoilers, but let's just say it like this. Ali Wong plays a woman who has done a lot of things wrong, and it's really weighing on her. There's a scene where she's talking to a counselor, and she says, hey, doctor, do you think it's really possible to love someone unconditionally? And the doctor says, what do you mean? And she's sitting there just so weighed down with everything she's done, and she says, you know, like there's a point at, at which we fall outside the reach of love. Like the mistakes become so big that the love has to stop. Have you ever felt that way? Like the mistakes you've made in life are so big that at some point you just fall outside the reach of love and the love has to stop? Friends, Jesus is our advocate. That means that when you stand accused, when you stand before God, that Jesus stands there right beside you as your advocate and he says, Father, I am here on behalf of my brothers and sisters. I'm here on their sake. And yes, they've done what they ought not to have done. And yes, they've said what they ought not to have said. And justice demands payment. Well, I'm here to provide it for you. On the cross, 
I paid the penalty for their sins. On the cross, I gave my body, I poured out my blood for the wrong that they have done. Justice demands payment. Well, payment has been made. But justice also says that once a penalty has been paid, it would be unjust to require payment because it's unjust to require double payment for the same sin. I have paid the penalty for their sin. Justice has been done. Your justice fell on me. And so I am um, asking you to forgive them. I do not ask for mercy for my client. I demand justice. That is an infallible case. Friends, look in front of you. Look at Jesus, our advocate, who's standing in front of you. He is the one standing there advocating for you. And the Holy Spirit is the one who comes into your life advocating that truth to you, making it more real to your heart so that now all of the glory, all the worth, value, and meaning that you long for, it's no longer in yourself. It's in Jesus. So that the Holy Spirit makes that real to you so that now you no longer have to go out into the world trying to filch little tidbits of glory, trying to tap dance for little morsels of approval and admiration. It means you are not outside the reach of God's unconditional love for you through Jesus. The Holy Spirit makes that real to your heart. Friends, we all need that. We need both kinds of advocates. We need need someone standing outside of us advocating for us. That's Jesus. But we also need someone advocating inside of us to us. That's the Holy Spirit. Friends, the Holy Spirit's job is to come into our lives, to dwell inside of us, and to make the glory, the love of Jesus more real to us. Do you have the Holy Spirit in your life doing that for you? Get the first advocate in your life, and you'll get the second along with him. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning that that we can never fall outside the reach of your love, that through the advocating work of Jesus Christ for us on the cross, through his blood poured out, through his body broken, we can have um, justice, but also forgiveness and love and acceptance and grace for you and with you. So, Father, we pray this morning that you would send the Holy Spirit more and more powerfully into our hearts and lives, that you would make the glory, the love, and the truth of Jesus more and more real to us so that we would no longer have to go out into the world seeking glory for ourselves, that we would no longer have to go out into the world seeking to find all truth within ourselves, but that we would be able to see the truth that is not just in Jesus, but that is Jesus. And that that truth, that reality, the glory of Jesus would transform us from the inside out. That we would be more and more in your image. And that we would be able to go out into the world more and more as vessels of the same advocating glorious truth of Jesus to the world around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we are going to receive our offering at this time. Uh, we don't pass a basket. There is a basket in the hallway if you want to avail yourself of that. Most people find it easiest and securest to go online. We do have a give page on our website. Uh, if you are a member or regular attender here, then this is an opportunity for us to partner together.